Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. Thursday afternoons, we're here at the Commonwealth Club where we record the daily progressive voices talk with my co-host John Zipper of the Commonwealth Club, and he's always a pleasure. He's the smart one of the show, so he carries us through while I casually make you giggle here and there. I thought I was the cut up. No. <laughs> Okay, I'll think of smart, something smart to say. <laughs> um, today's very special. I'm so excited to have our guest here. I, I posted a video of her uh, over the weekend, and it was the first time I had seen her perform, and it was for TDOV, or Trans Day of Visibility, and was so mesmerized by her talent. And it was like, I've got to figure out, I've got to find out who this you know, person is, this performer and next thing you know, within the, the last few years, she has really blown up and has performed for some of our most iconic uh, groups or situations and sports team. I mean, to be able to sing for a sports team as a queer person, you know, that's groundbreaking. Um, I'm going to read her bio, and very rare do I actually do that here on the show, but it's so impressive. I, I want to read it. Brianna Sinclair is a native of Baltimore, Maryland, and a graduate of Cal Arts. She received her master's from the San Francisco Conservatory of Music, and she was the first trans woman of the opera program under the pedagogy of Miss Ruby Pleasure. Operatic performances include Carmen La Calisto, The Old Maid, The Thief, The Magic Flute, West Side Story, as well as Meredith Monk's Songs of Ascension at Red Cat and Zachary Sharin's Time Bodies at MOCA and, or MOCA and, and lots more. But to speed it up, because we really want to hear from Brianna, um, <laughs> outside of opera, Miss Sinclair has enjoyed a variety of performance opportunities with LGBT and other nonprofit organizations throughout the nation. Most recently, the Gay Men's Chorus of Washington, D.C. and San Francisco and made her debut at the Walt Disney Concert Hall with the Los Angeles Gay Men's Chorus. And other performances include Americans for the Arts, Washington, D.C. and Toronto Pride Festivals, SF Trans March, Fresh Meat Trans and Queer Arts Festivals, Harvey Milk LGBT Democratic Club, LinkedIn's LGBT Q Employee Resource Group, and uh, and uh, and uh, I have to add this the, the 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 sports group, and I'm such not a sports fan, but was it? Yes, the national anthem at a professional sporting event for the Oakland A's, San Francisco Giants, and San Francisco Deltas. Let's welcome Brianna Sinclair. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much, Michelle and Jonathan. Um, I'm not used to sitting down and interviewing with people. I'm used to singing. I was telling Michelle in the back that, like, I'm a little nervous, you know, talking. But um, I didn't realize that, you know, when you hear your bio, you're like, God, I really did all, all of this stuff. And I'm just kind of like, oh, my God. But um, I'm really thankful to be here. And thank you. And thank you, Commonwealth Club, as well. Yeah. This is uh, also a very special treat for us. I think you're our first performer who's actually going to perform a song for us today. Um, so we're excited for that. But before we get to the good stuff, <laughs> all of it's good. But it is tradition here on the program where we open up the show with you, uh, our guests, sharing a coming out story, whatever that means to you. And we've asked people from all over, you know, uh, allies, politicians, they come out every now and then. <laughs> Well, I mean, I had several coming out stories, but I think the one that was prominent, um, when I, it was my second year at CalArts, and um, I wanted to get my ears pierced because I was in the process of like really embracing my gender and my transition. And uh, my girlfriend, I remember her, my girlfriend Kelly she um, she actually drove me to the mall in Valencia, California to get my ears pierced at Claire's. And um, I was so nervous, but that day was just so, like, it was specific for me because, I don't know, I, I used to see all my girlfriends wear these hoop earrings and these gaudy jewelry. I'm like, that is no fair. I want to do that. And, and so when I um, got my ears pierced at Claire's, um, I remember Kelly saying, you better watch out while she's going to come out with hoop earrings and this and this. But that was like a part of my coming out story, just the steps towards me transitioning into, you know, who I am today as a woman. Mm -hmm. So, 
Thank you. <laughs> John? I want to get to the very beginning of the music, your interest in it. When you were really young, were you, A, a music fan, and B, when did you want to be, you know, when did that you realize, no, I want to make that music? Well, I was a bad child, really bad. Um, <laughs> I was loud. I was dramatic. Um, my favorite character was uh, Ariel from The Little Mermaid. And so she would, you know, in the movie, she combed her hair with forks. And so I would go in my mom's kitchen, steal the forks, and I would comb my curly fro in my bedroom, and I would hide all the forks. And my mother would be like, why? Like, you know, why are you hiding all the forks? What are you doing with these forks? And my mother knew there was something different and interesting about me. And... Um, but music was such a huge part of our family. Um, my dad plays seven instruments. <clears throat> my mother plays two. She played the flute and um, the cello. And um, classical music, surprisingly, was something that actually shut me up. And it, it, my grandmother would play it a lot because she would babysit me um, when my parents were going through such a very difficult time through divorce and stuff. And so my grandmother would, you know, come over... And, and, and watch me, and I would hear her singing, like, you know, just a lot of Negro spirituals um, that was very prominent in our family. And she would play these tracks, like uh, George Shirley, who's a world, world-renowned tenor, Leontine Price, Jesse Norman, and she would play these over and over. And I was just, I was so captivated by that and the sound, like, wow, someone can actually do that. And this is me at, like, six, seven years old. Wow. And um, my grandmother, she took me to my first opera um, at the uh, Lyric Opera House in Baltimore. And we saw Puccini's Madame Butterfly. And the smile on my grandmother's face, because she kept looking at me, I was just so like, wow, the costumes, the makeup. And, and um, I was actually quiet for the first time in t- for two hours, two and a half hours. So I think that's probably why she was mostly happy that, you know, I wasn't <laughs> screaming and acting crazy and stuff like that. And so I said to her and I looked at her in her eye and I remember this day vividly. And I said, I was like, Grandma, this is what I want to do with my life. I want to I want to sing like this is what I want to do. And ever since then, like, she's kind of been like my driving force in where I am today. And um, I st- I studied my, I had my first training at the age of 12 at Morgan State University with Nathan Carter. And, um, and I was studying as a tenor at the time. And, you know, I was going through some gender issues because that was sort of like my first conviction. And I was just dealing with so much. Like at five, I didn't think I was a boy. I thought I was a girl. I would always, you know, want to play with the Barbies, honestly, and go jump roping with the girls. And my dad, like, forced me to play basketball. And one day I just threw the ball. I said, bye, dad. <laughs> and, and I was like, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> um but yeah, so music has always been a huge staple in our family, and um, I'm really thankful for my for my grandmother that, you know, she is so. Uh, even though she's, I mean, the only education that she's had, well, she's was like in elementary school. That was it, and and but she was just so well traveled and like, just so like, just really involved in in the classical music, and that just really. It captivated me, and I'm, I'm thankful that she's introduced me to this genre of music, where there's not many people of color doing this genre. So, Oh, we'll definitely get to that. Um, so was it your grandmother who witnessed your talent, or was she the first person to witness it? Well, I sang my first solo at uh, New Shallow Baptist Church in Baltimore, Maryland. I was in the gospel choir, and I could sing all four parts. <laughs> and... Um, uh, the choir director gave me a solo, and I sing just Amazing Grace. And everyone in the church was like, oh, my God, this little person can, like, can project and sing with such power and, and, and expressiveness. And uh, that's when my grandmother knew there was something, that she wanted to just hone that and protect that. And I think she really was, you know, she really just kind of just protected me and made sure that I had the specific training to get where I am today. Um, even though my family didn't have much money, um, but my grandmother made sure that I would, I had to go to my voice lessons and, um, you know, do the things I need to do to 
perfect my craft. And so I thank her. And her name is Kathleen Bowen. So I love her so much. And um, so, yeah. That's so great. Is she still alive, may I ask? Yeah, she's still alive. And actually, um, she's a diva, <laughs> a big diva. And people say that, well, my family says that I kind of re- act like my grandmother. <laughs> um, but she, she's amazing. And uh, she's hilarious. And she's very honest. And she's very truthful. And she speaks her mind. And, you know, I think that's one thing I like about her. She never cared what other people thought of her. And um, I know she was telling me when I was a teenager, when we were watching some civil rights documentary, and she, and she was actually arrested for, so um, she wanted to buy this hat that said whites only. And she took the hat, put it on her head and said, I'm wearing this to church, bye. And she dropped <laughs> the money and she, she, she got arrested. But um, that just, just comes to show that she's a fighter. And I think that's where I've developed those fighting qualities mm-hmm. um, when I was dealing with my transition. So, And, and how was she with your transition? Was that... um, now she's a little better. I haven't talked to my father um, in about 11 years. Because um, I, I start, uh, when I transitioned, he decided to just, you know, um, just not be a part of my life. So I don't know where he is or what he's doing. Um, my mom was still in the process of, well, I mean, I'm still in the process of educating her mm-hmm. and it's, it's, it's difficult for her. Um, <clears throat> but I want her to know that I love her so much and that what I'm doing is, you know, you know, it, I know a lot of parents think when you're, when their child transitions, it's, it's a selfish thing and it's not, it's like I said, it was a conviction that that I dealt with at the age of five and throughout my middle school years and my high school years. And it, it was a very, very difficult, especially when you are, um, when your parents are religious, cause my dad's a pastor, my mom's a minister. So I, I had to deal uh, with a lot of religion and getting beat with the Bible. And, you know, it was, it was, I had a very difficult childhood in that aspect. And it, it, it really traumatized me psychologically. Um, and that, and that's something that I'm now like I've worked through and, um, I've worked through with therapy, but I don't think parents understand that that trauma that a child goes through, you know, and also like when I was a kid, I, I, I mean, people would tease me because when I was, when I was young, I looked very feminine. And when my mom my 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 mom would she told me that uh you know people think thought that i was her i was her daughter um because I had these like big eyes and I was just very just you know <laughs> I just was very soft for a boy, and I remember when my hair got really long, I loved it, and I would like put little rats and then when my mom caught me, I would throw it in trash <laughs> and um my dad actually caught me doing that as well and he took me to the barber shop and he shaved my head and I was crying because like my, my curly hair my little fro was just something that I could express feminine wise and so throughout that time I had to shave my head bald just so I could look masculine I had to wear suits and specific attire so it was it was brutal. And my dad was very abusive. Um, he beat me all the time. Like if I put my hand on my hip or if I swayed my hand or if I switch, you know, he would grab me. I remember, uh, one day he grabbed me and he has these belts that had like these like silver designs. I don't know. They were like metal or whatever. And he would just keep whipping me and whipping me until, um, I bled. So, you know, it, it it was it was a lot to handle, you know. But that's why I always say that my music was kind of a way of me, you know, getting through those very difficult times. Yeah, resilience, this word I keep coming back to, especially for our trans brothers and sisters, um, in in enduring the the trauma. Uh, they're very real, yet are able to be resilient and courageous and strong and move forward in your truth. Everything about you and your music is testimony to not 
this idea of it being a choice, but the will to live and to do you. So the music part that I hear, I'm hearing, you know, it keeps you, it kept you alive and it kept you going. And it's the one thing, the outlet that you really focused on for yourself. Uh, share with us, you know, the uh, experiences of, of, of you know, how music was healing for you and also uh, powerful. Yeah, um, I think music is powerful universally. Um, you know, ev- music is a way of, you know, it, well, music for me was a way of really escaping some really dark issues that I was dealing with with my gender. And um, it really is something that kind of just, it keeps me grounded. Um, and I remember when I was homeless in New York City, you know, I would hum to myself and, um, sorry, (laughs) it was really rough, but when I was homeless in New York city, I, you know, I would hum to myself because that was something just, it it kept me going. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, I never take for granted when someone asked me to sing or asked me to perform because I know that, I can express that to someone who experienced the same situation that I've been through. And I'm, and I don't regret being homeless because it was something that made me stronger and made me who I am. And I feel like it's, it built character and it was like the building blocks of my music that I'm able to express these characters and this, and this music in a way that is so passionate and deep and you know I don't consider myself an activist for the community I I feel like my voice speaks itself as activism um I I don't like to take on those roles but um I don't think people understand that trans individuals we are strong people and we go through so much that I don't even think the average human can go would be able to handle and you know, I was uh, raped twice in New York City, and I was, um, and just those experiences, I just would never thought I would be out of this situation. I would never thought I would be here today speaking to you, honestly, um, because it was, it was such a dark era, um, era in, my, in my life, a dark time in my life. But I do thank the universe for giving me this gift, because it's not my gift. The, I feel like the universe has given me this gift to sing and to express the music. Um, so I'm very thankful for my gift. And my voice teachers are very adamant in, in, in me being having gratitude and, and having gratitude in my music and not take that for granted. Because what we do as musicians and as artists and actors, and um, it's a service to the people. It's, it's not about us. Yes, we get all nice and dressed up and gowns and this, but that's, that's last. But the, the main priority as a performer is to really um, express what the composer has written, express the story, express the character. And, I, and, and my teachers, ever since I was 12, would tell me it's all about musicianship and how you express that and not try to be like everybody else. And, you know, I always would, would see other singers and I'd be like, oh God, I wish I sounded like that or I wish I looked like that or I wish I was short or this or this. But, you know, Sherry and Ruby Pleasure, um, Ruby Pleasure was my opera coach at the conservatory. Now I'm standing with Sherry Greenwald at the SF Opera. And she's always highlighted originality and being original and using that voice. And, and same for Ruby. I remember, you know, one day I came to my lesson, I was crying and I was like, I'm going to quit school. I can't do this. <laughs> like, you know, everyone is way advanced, you know, even though I, I was advanced as an other voice type, cause I was advanced as a tenor, but I just started my soprano training um, actually six years ago. And so when I was studying with Ruby, she really, expressed to me that I need to use my authentic voice. And that is so important. Even if you're a speaker or an actor, I'm sure actors hear this all the time, being, 
being authentic with the character and being authentic with yourself, you know, um, because I, I would complain. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm too tall, or my shoulders are too broad, or my hands are too big. No tenor will want me to sing on stage with them because I'm taller than them. But my teacher said, no, <laughs> they'll fix the stage for that, honey. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> I said, I was like, okay. So um, I really, Ruby Pleasure was like my mother, and she actually looks like my mother. Like she's about five four. Um, very wise, you know, I just, it was really weird. I felt like my mother's spirit, like, went inside Ruby. I'm like, Mom, are you, like, following me? Like, what is going <laughs> on here? But, um, but yes, I think as I am growing as a young musician, I think authenticity is so important. So, mm. yes. You've talked about the music in general that attracted you and you, you sing and, and perform. Um, Get specific about some of the the, the specific, uh, whether composers or pieces of music that you love to perform, and maybe it's even a different group that you just like to listen to. Yes. Um, well, I I love Puccini. Of course, everyone loves Puccini. Mm-hmm. Um, I love Saint-Saëns. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was actually my first aria that I auditioned at the conservatory, the Moncre Souvre à Tavois. Um, from Samson and Delilah, and um, that was actually, like, I was, it was a very difficult aria for me in the beginning, but I was so adamant, like, I'm going to learn this, I'm going to get this, my voice is going to get there, and um, I know, that was like, uh, it was like a driving force, because I sang that aria for so long, and I'm, I'm, I'm hopefully be able to sing Delilah um, in the future, hopefully. Um, but I love Puccini, I love Carmen, I love Bizet, I love his work, um, I love Berlioz's work, um, uh, what else, uh, Defier's work, so, th- I mean, there's plenty of composers that I, I love, but, um, I, 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 I work on music that not only push me and challenge me, but also where I am developing-wise, like, <clears throat> uh, now, with when I'm working with Sherry Greenwald at the SF Opera, my voice has actually shifted into the soprano fac, and uh, we've been gradually getting into that register. And in my last lesson, I vocalized to like a high soprano E F, and she and she made a joke, and she's like, "Oh my God, you could be our next Tosca." And I was like, "Oh, that would be a dream <laughs> of mine <laughs> to play at Tosca," um, but. Uh, we, my, I'm happy that I have teachers that were, because there's teachers that don't teach. There are teachers that give students music that is not healthy for the voice, you know, that push them too far. Some at like 19, 18, and then their voices are gone by the age of 30, 40. And so my teachers were very um, strict about me picking repertoire and, and where I am you know, at the moment. And so now since my voice has advanced tremendously from that last video you posted on Instagram, I was like, ooh. <laughs> I was blown away, so I'm excited to hear what is better today. I don't know what was better than that. But, um, but yeah, so now I'm just working on specific repertoire that um, that is really working on development and technique. Mm-hmm. Um, because the musicianship and all that stuff comes into play once you get all of those technical aspects done. And it's a lot of work, and I don't think people understand how much work is involved um, in in the classical field. It's like being a ballet dancer. You're always practicing. You're always working. You're you're making... You know, I have to dissect text and I have to dissect characters and I have to listen to specific accompaniment parts of the song and where the melody is lying and the bass and the harmony. So there's so much going on. And um, so right now I'm, um, I'm working on the aria Quando Lietta Uchi um, from La Boheme by Puccini. And so Shari gave me that aria because... It's working on different parts of my voice. It's working on the middle register, the lower register, and it's also working on the very high register because wow. I sing a B flat <laughs> and then a high a high B flat and a high A flat at the end. So, um, and then it goes all the way down back to you know the lower register. And she did that purposely because we're working on the building blocks or making the voice even from my lower register to my upper register. So. She's picking repertoire more for technical things. Oh, um, but I'm shocked that I'm actually singing 
uh, that soprano part in La Boheme because I would never thought I would be singing that because before I was like a mezzo and I was labeled as a mezzo. Um, but we'll see where the voice goes. Yeah. And, and, and <laughs> Sounds like we need your voice, though. We need, you know, in, in all its diversity in your voice. So speaking of diversity, I mean, you know, just a little while ago, um, you brought up being... Uh, that that the, the symphony, the classical world opera needs more diversity. And it's interesting in an article I read on KQED, of all places, I mean, the first two sentences really offended me because it was an article about you, but described you as so not the usual or typical opera singer. Uh, and, and there were a little bit of you know, body shaming language. Um, and yes, mentioned that you're too tall, which by the way, 90% of people wish they were a little bit taller, including myself. Uh, and, and so I, I didn't, in hearing you and so focused on your talent, it never really occurred to me that the look was that important. But share with us, you know, these issues, even in the opera world, where, yeah, that's, you experienced that too. Yes. Um, <laughs> well, I can sing now. I love my height. I love that I stand tall. And you know what? Um, one of my favorite opera singers, Joan Sutherland, she was my height, six foot two. And I see her walk on stage and I'm like, oh my God, like it was just beautiful. And to me, it's just, you know, my teachers would tell me to, you know, uh, to look at these artists because, you know, they come out with confidence. But I don't, I, you know, I don't know what goes on in her head backstage, but when she performs, she performs with such confidence. And Joan Sutherland, in regards to heights, I look up to you because she's just tall and statuesque. Um, but yes, I think the divert, the, you know, the look portion of it is very challenging for me because I don't look sort of like the average woman, in, in, in like, I guess, society's eyes. So it can be a bit challenging, but I try not to think about that. And they can critique my body all they want. But right now, I really want to be the best musician that I can be. And I know that sounds cliche, but if I worry about, oh, this or that or this or that, I mean, you know, yes, I'm on a little diet and I'm doing my little thing, going to the gym. But, you know, those things are for me, mm-hmm. you know, not for... Um, that. But in regards to diversity, um, we're still uh, battling with ethnicity and race. Like, I mean, I, I see very few African-American singers on the stage, you know. I see very few Asian and Latina folks on the stage. And so it's still a working progress. And if we, we have to get past this hurdle first because I'm trans and a trans woman of color. And that's a whole nother spectrum and a whole nother level. So it's just like, we need to get past, you know, this race and ethnicity first um, in the field. And, you know, I've had experiences where, honestly, you know, I, you know, there was a soprano who was, you know, she was okay, but... (laughs) But we auditioned for the same part, but she got it and her voice wasn't fully developed and and she was she was a white woman. And so I've come to realize that, you know, these are certain things that I'm going to have to deal with. And it's the truth. I can't like lie and say that it's easy. You know, it's not easy. Um, I'm pretty sure that Lansing Price and Grace Bunbury and Jesse Norman had a lot of battles to fight to get to where they are today. And I think if they dwelled on the racial inequality that goes on in the music business and, 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 and if they worried about all the other stuff, they would not be where they are. They would not be icons and legends. And, and you know, when I see Leontine Pricing on stage and how she lifts her head up with confidence and sings, you know, you know, that voice comes with like conviction and power because there's so much, so much stuff. There's so many things telling her that she's, you know, she's a black woman. She'll never be successful. And I'm sure she's heard that a lot. And her voice is amazing. And just because of race. And at the end of the day, it really is about the music. So I just hope that the, the meet the, this genre will really um, uh, get to a place where, 
that we start to see a little bit more diversity on stage. I, I because um, when I was in Tanglewood, uh, Tanglewood Institute, it's a music program in Lenox, Massachusetts. Um, I saw Jesse Norman at the C.G. Ozawa Hall. And for me, I was just like, wow, <laughs> like she was this big, tall, you know, big woman, tall woman. And she just was just so confident. And, and, and to me, that was something that I needed to see because I'm used to seeing white classical singers all the time. And that's fine. I mean, I know amazing white classical singers, but I do like to see, you know, a Latina, more Latinas or more Asian women or men, you know, just to take on these lead roles, you know, so... But yes, diversity is still a work in progress. <laughs> I have a game that I kind of play sometimes when I go see those Met at the HD things and they'll show in theaters. And so before the, the actual opera starts, they'll often be panning the crowd. And so my game with myself was trying to count African-Americans in the audience. And as, as much as there's a dearth of diversity on the stage... There have been times when I'm like, of all the, all the shots of the audience, and they're just roving, going back and forth, there are more African-Americans on stage than there are in the audience. So are, are there programs, and, I, and in fact, one of the, the singers in, on, and, and the Met, one of the Met uh, productions was saying he actually got into opera from a program that specifically was doing outreach to African-Americans. Mm-hmm. Are there other programs like that? Should there be more, or what is the best way? I mean, you grew up with your family playing it. And then I, I suspect most young people of all races probably are not you know, growing up with it. How can we increase the diversity in the seats as well? Um, I think if we can increase diversity in the seats, I think we need to see more of it in, in performances. I think if you know, a young black kid sees uh, you know, a black male playing a heroic tenor role, I mean... Like their kid, I saw black kids sing Black Panther and they were so like enthralled and like, oh my God, there's a superhero that kind of resembles me. If we have more of that on stage, I think more people will come out with the diversity. But um, in regards to African-American programs, I'm actually not sure. My family actually scraped money to get <laughs> to where I am today. Like, I mean, they worked hard, but I know there are historically black colleges, <clears throat> you know, like Howard University and Morgan State University that like, you know, um, hones black talent. And like my grandmother would take me to um, the Morgan State University choirs concerts that they have every year. And to see a choir of people of color was just so empowering to me because it made me know, it made me realize that I can do that and I can sing this type of work. So I do think representation is important, but um, yeah, so. I I mean, some of the stuff that you're doing, though, just outside of uh, the opera house and singing for, you know, sports teams or 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 for even the gay men's chorus. I mean, you're just kind of giving the community uh, an opportunity to see you sing. And for me, as a member of the LGBTQ community, I mean, I I wouldn't really. No, I'm not a big opera fan. I don't like you know every weekend go or anything. But if Brianna was singing, I would. And so uh, uh, to, to, to expand on the, the representation part, to be known as the first trans opera singer to do this and to do that, or to be recognized by Out 100 as the trans you know, opera singer, do you enjoy that? Do you like that role? Um, well, there, there are other trans singers out there. Mm-hmm. I, my good friend, Lucia Lucas, she's a trans woman, and she's very well known in Germany. And she actually sings baritone, so she does pants rolls, which I think is so cool. I mean, she doesn't sing soprano, but she sings baritone, and she does pants rolls. And um, we talk all the time, because she's always like, oh, with her German accent of how, like, you know, I'm doing so well in the U.S. and, and stuff like that. But I don't know. I try to ignore names because honestly, I'm being really honest. This is not a cliche. I am really focused on being a great musician because I want people to take me seriously, not like a circus freak or, you know, a drag queen. You know, I've, I've had both ends of the spectrum. I've had people celebrating my gift and celebrating my talent. Then I had other people disrespecting 
who I am as a person and my gift and my talent. So I try not to like focus too much on labels, but I am thankful that these opportunities came my way and they asked me to do these things. And I'm very, very grateful. Um, but I mean, it's just kind of weird to see like, oh, you know, first trend singer singing the SF Jones. I'm like, oh, wow, I really <laughs> did that. Like sometimes it's shocking to me. Um, but I... Yeah, I'm not I'm not a label type of person, and yeah. I try not to get too involved in the hoopla, you know. And my my coaches tell me that too. They always tell me, "Don't get too involved in all of that. You need to really focus on being a great musician because you can be excited about the hoopla and your music, and you sound bad. That's a totally different story." So, well, guess um, what? Just by being you and being a great musician. You're making change in an industry that needed the change. Yeah. And, and that's the beautiful, beautiful part of, of your story. I can't wait to get to the performance. We're at the part now where our audience gets to interact and ask questions uh, for Brianna. So if you've got a question, the mic is, is, is there a roving mic or are we passing out? Yes. And so speaking to the mic, it is being recorded for Progressive Voices. Question for Brianna? I have a question, and I've always wondered. This, I'm, some, oh, okay. Um, I've always wondered when I'm watching opera singers singing Italian, German, or whatever, how many of them actually understand that language? Because of course they might be singing. Uh, you know, <laughs> great question. Well, I mean, they're they're, they're professionals, right. so we we have to understand the language. We have to understand every word that we're singing. I mean, I remember. When I was getting my master's and I was just singing this R, I'm like, oh, my teacher will never know that I didn't learn the, the, the text. And she said, she said to me, she says, Brianna, go back to the library. <laughs> oh, I, was like, oh. I was like, oh, she's like, I don't care how well you sound. She's like, you need to understand. You need to know what you're singing about. So, yes, like yeah. professionals, great musicians, great artists, they have to know Every word they're singing, and some of the, and some opera singers they are fluent in these languages. Like, I'm somewhat fluent in German. Um, I really like that language for some reason, mm-hmm. and I like singing German leader like Schubert and Schumann because they're like folk stories and folk songs. Um, but yes, I, um, yeah, I hear singers all the time. They have to know what we're singing about, <laughs> like. Because it, you know, especially if you're singing the Italian opera, you don't know what you're singing, and you're playing a character. The audience could be like, "What is going on?" Here? <laughs> so, like, you ha- everything comes into play. You have to, yeah. That's the the part about being a musician. Like Jesse Norman, uh, when she sang the Erkanich, mm-hmm. uh, she knew every German language when she sang that performance, and, and she. It's, and she played every character. She played the child, the villain, the storyteller. And I could tell she knew everything from top to bottom. And I was like, wow, like that is amazing. And I just cannot imagine how much work that must take to really master that. So, but yes, yes, the majority of opera singers, we, we know. Yeah. Question over here. Hi. Hey, I'm just wondering, is there a role that is like a dream role for you, like in a perfect world? What would be the role that you'd love to play? Hi, Gary. That's my Uncle Gary. Hi, Uncle Gary. <laughs> um, uh, probably Carmen Tosca. I have to play Tosca one day. I just hope that I will sing that because that would just be so, so life-changing and, and that would be really amazing. Um, what else? Yeah, some of the, actually, the roles that I'm actually singing right now, the R's I'm singing, those are the roles I actually want to do. I really want to play Delilah on stage. I'm going to play Rosalka, which is a mermaid. And so that would be so perfect for me. Yeah. Because I'm so obsessed with the little mermaid. Um, but yes, Tosca, um, the Rosalka, Carmen, and Delilah are probably my top four. But I really want to play Tosca really bad. Mm. So... Great. Got another question here. Uh, can you talk a bit about uh, what your vocal training has been like and what has it been like to, it sounds like you're continuing to broaden your range. Uh, when will you stop? <laughs> Are there notes that you will that you hope to continue to reach that we can hear Yeah, humans? well, I think I'll never stop. Probably when I'm like 70, I'll probably stop or like 60. But like as 
I know as a musician, we're always working on the voice and the voice is continually changing. And um, I'm just being honest with you. I'm just going to keep working on it until things are, you know, my technique is solidified that I'm able to sing any type of genre or music. Um, I do love musical theater. I used to hate musical theater, but <laughs> my friends have got me into it. And it was like, Brianna, you should do musical theater. So I might dibble dabble in that maybe later in my career, uh, my developing career. So I think right now the focus is really just working on the voice. Um, I know that, you know, when I started training at the conservatory and I was on hormones, um, it was really difficult because my body was like lethargic and I had headaches and specific things that estrogen does. And I hate, I'm sorry, I hate estrogen, but <laughs> <laughs> I say it all the time, but my teachers are always say like, well, you got to get used to it. You're a woman now. And I'm like, okay, okay, whatever. <laughs> and, um, so that was kind of like the, when I was at the conservatory, that was very challenging for me because, people could physically see the change. It's not like I was gay where a lot of gay people, they can hide their gayness. They can look straight and like, you know, and do whatever. But like for me and a lot of trans folks, our transition is very visual and people see that. And so people saw me going through this path um, when I was sitting at the conservatory. And it's very difficult because, you know, I would come, I would go to our, uh, uh, opera workshops and stuff and, and they would all just look at me and say, I'm like, oh, my God, y'all, can we just, you know, learn the music? And it's like, please, like, it's it can be a little much um, when you're transitioning. But I actually now I'm so used to the estrogen in my body. I'm just like, I'm lethargic. Oh, well, I'm going to go sing well, you know, <laughs> and just call it a day um, and do the best that I can. So. Um, I will continually keep training and I'm really thankful for Shari Greenewald. She's been my mentor and she's an amazing soprano. Every time I hear her sing in my lessons, I'm like, oh my God, I suck so bad. But um, she is like really doing some amazing things with my voice and um, kudos to her because I would never thought I'd be singing this way. So, but yeah. Great. Another question back here. Uh, following on Gary's question a little bit, where do you go from here? And where does San Francisco opera rank maybe in, in sort of around the country? Is it, is it high up there? Do you, do you see yourself moving maybe out of the country? Where do you want to go? Well, my dream is to live in Europe. I want to go to Europe so bad. I love German cooking and the sausages. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I love Italian cooking and French cooking. I love culture. And that's something about me that I think my family was kind of, you know, I grew up in like Southern roots, you know, and they don't know. My family didn't know too much about culture. And I, I was always obsessed with like, just exploring life and culture. And that's just been my big dream. I, my dream is to sing at La Scala one day, please. <laughs> and, uh, but the San Francisco Opera is like ranked um, really high. It's next to the Seattle Opera, the Met, and the New York City Opera. So they're kind of like the big time opera companies. And then you have like little small ones. But, um, but San Francisco is above that like five opera, you know, favorite rank, whatever. Uh, um, <clears throat> but... Eventually, I want to move to Europe, but I want to keep my residency in San Francisco. The reason why is because I created such a family here. Um, I am so thankful for my San Francisco family. They have really uplifted me and protected me and made sure that I'm okay. And, and I, I know Veronica Klaus, um, she is a renowned uh, trans jazz and cabaret singer. And she would, I remember when I was getting my master's and I was broke, she would invite me to her home and she would cook me dinner. And just like, this is the place that I want to keep my residency here. And I met my fiance, my partner of five years. Woo. We're getting married next year. <laughs> And, you know, I met him out here. I completed my transition out here. I did my name and gender change out here. So this place is historical for me, and I really want to keep my residency here. But definitely I want to travel to Europe and sing, you know, with the Royal Opera in London and stuff like that. That's kind of been like a big dream of mine. So I hope I get there. <laughs> but, yes, that's been a huge dream. So is there any other questions? Sir. 
Rihanna, you mentioned that you like the German language. Could you see yourself singing Wagner at a later, later stage in your career? <laughs> well, I'm not a huge fan of Wagner, but Shari did say to me, she's like, you might be a Wagnerian soprano because... Um, even though I, ha I have transitioned as a woman, my body and my lung capacity and my ribcage capacity is larger than the average woman. So my body is able to handle specific arias. I'm not trying to sound sexist or anything. It's just that my I'm built, you know, broad that my, my body is able to handle that type of work. And so she did say to me that maybe in the future, late future, when I'm like 40 or 50, that I might be a Wagnerian soprano. I'm like, oh my God, that's amazing. <laughs> But we'll see. We'll see. As long as I'm singing healthily and doing the right things with my voice, that might happen. And Dirk, you might come see me at the Opera House in, in Deutschland. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, we're almost there. We're almost there to the grand finale of Yeah, where you perform for us. Can I ask before we get to the actual yeah. singing, where can people see you perform next? Or That was what, my what question. <laughs> <laughs> well, London Bree, the mayor, um, cordially invited me to sing for the Black History Month uh, closing ceremony at City Hall. So I'm going to sing there. Um, and what else? Like, I have like little things brewing up that I really can't say because it is on the radio. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I normally... Um, I have like my Twitter and my Facebook, and I normally post my performances on there because people want to come and see them. So tell people how they can find you online. Then. Um, yeah, just uh, just find me on Facebook, Brianna Elise Sinclair. Um, hopefully, I can spell that. I don't spell <laughs> Brianna with an I, but yeah, or Twitter, which is Bria Sinclair. I, you know, a lot of shows that I do, you know, I have people who post those, some of those things for me. So, but as of now, I'm taking one thing at a time so but yeah so that would be my next performance at city hall next week Great. so last 20th. question before well actually no it's the question before the real last question <laughs> <laughs> um and it really is just to to wrap up with you leaving us some words of of encouragement and your hopes and dreams especially with 2020 coming up Oh, 20 election year. <laughs> we'll keep politics out of this interview. But um, yes, I, I said in the beginning, authenticity. That's the most important thing is just being your authentic self and, you know, and embracing who you are. And that's just something that I've been focusing on for the past two years, just embracing everything about me, flaws and all. Um, and, you know, um, yeah, so... Yeah. That's kind it. of just, yeah, authenticity. That's kind of just been the thing for these past two years. So share with us, um, it, it really is the last question now before you perform, but what are, uh, what are you performing for us? Oh, okay. So I, uh, it's just three minutes. I'm just going to sing Porgy and Bess, Summertime by George Gershwin. And um, I'm actually going to be singing it in the soprano keys. So we'll see what happens. Oh, God. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thank you. 
Oh, I wish there were a few more songs. Um, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you to the audience for being here with us today. The Michelle Miao Show is here every Thursday at the Commonwealth Club. We have some great guests coming up. You can check the schedule at commonwealthclub.org slash MMS. And another great round of applause for the amazing Brianna Sinclair. Thanks for joining us for the Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. We're here every Thursday live at the Commonwealth Club, and you can listen to past shows at commonwealthclub.org slash MMS. <laughs>